How crazy is it that pain is one of my favorite topics? Well, not so crazy as pain may be life's most common symptom. One study pegs the annual cost of pain as a primary diagnosis to be between 261 to 300 billion dollars. Yikes. There's no one I'd rather talk with about pain than Amy Baxter. Amy and I correspond regularly about life and pain. We last recorded a conversation about pain in July 2019. It was called Pain, the Solution, Many Solutions. Our knowledge about the pathways and switches of the brain's survival system has increased dramatically since 2019. Let's jump right in. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. You'll listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. Like what you're reading, hearing, or watching? Go to the link tree slash health hats for all things health hats. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash health hats, one word. Thank you. Hi, Amy. Thank you so Hi, much Danny. for being you? here. I'm good. I'm good. I love seeing you. Um, someday we'll um, see each other again in person, and I'm looking forward to that day. But in the meanwhile, you look great, and uh, thanks for joining us. May so- I just say that uh, I love your hat. It's very, very <laughs> Maui forward. It's very appropriate for the seasons. Oh, yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. So, thank you. All right. So, you've learned a lot about pain since we talked last. Tell us about that. It's both the practical and the academic. I broke my neck in 2015 and then got intubated for a while. And and then I've had a rip. A rotator cuff that I ignored until it got horrific. So I feel really grateful that I've had the experience to have to cope with my own acute and chronic pain, mostly chronic. And um, it's nothing like having, I imagine having a, a genetic issue or having a, an inflammatory ongoing issue and particularly something like COVID or fibromyalgia or, or an autoimmune system situation where it's ongoing and systemic. Nonetheless, I've had that experience, which has been really valuable. And I also have been working with the National Institutes of Health Health and Addiction Long-Term Program, bridging that place between pain and opioid use, because if we didn't have the issues of post-surgical pain and acute pain that we treated with opioids, we wouldn't have an opioid problem. So yeah, I've been busy. Goodness. Where should we start? Got any ideas? Let's start with the stuff I put in the TED Talk, because I think 
I spent a lot of time trying to encapsulate what I'd learned in a way that people could use it and benefit from it and change society and how we deal with healthcare in this company or country. <laughs> Freudian. Um, yeah. So doctors are not, physicians are not taught about pain in medical school. We don't know what it is. We don't understand how to treat it. We don't really think it's our job because we're supposed to figure out what caused the pain and fix that or inflict pain in order to diagnose it. But most people go to the doctor for pain. So that I think was something I hadn't appreciated. And what we have learned about pain in the last 20 years through functional MRI is that it's not what we do learn about in medical school, which is basically you poke your finger and if you had lidocaine in there, it wouldn't hurt. But if you don't, it goes up to your brain and it hurts. Instead, pain is really just the oldest, best survival system. So it's a full brain, total symphony of everything you've ever associated with something you want to avoid. So pain is not just the incoming stimulus. It is all of the memory and fear and decision-making and actions. And it's just this giant response. So sometimes your brain is wrong about how much pain you should actually feel. And sometimes you can learn how to override the brain and say, no, actually, we're fine. So um, I, I have this um, automatic reaction whenever anybody uses the word should. And I'm wondering if, um, if can I frame it as, as being useful to you as opposed to should? The reaction? It's an option. I, okay. I tell my kids all the time, uh, opportunity, not obligation. Okay. So I think if we understand what is happening that causes us to feel pain, it makes it easier to think about ways to cope with it. Oh, totally. So, so, I to that. Oh, unknown you know, pain can, yeah. is so scary. Yeah. And I think what both of us talked about um, offline recently is that once you've had chronic pain that flares back up, it's easier every time to remember what you do that helps. And last time you told me about hydration and I had not been aware that even mild dehydration increases your pain sensitivity. So, so I, the things that you tell people and the things that you do, what is your pattern? What do you do when you've had ongoing yeah. pain that then flares up? So, so I just ordered a shirt that says, um, drink water, love hard, um, uh, fight racism and drink water is the top one. <laughs> All good things. And with the opportunities you have to do them, that's pretty proportional. Yes. <laughs> so here's some stuff about pain. Okay. So pain goes into your brain in sensation nerves that get filtered so many places. So they get filtered in the spine. They get filtered in the brain's conductor, the thalamus. And when people do not have chronic pain, the thalamus sends information to part of your brainstem saying, cancel that out or just dial that down, please. We don't need that. But when you have chronic pain, that area of inhibition gets shrinks a little 
Uh, and then the areas in the thalamus that say, send this to the areas that get worried about pain and ramp it up, those areas get bigger. When it's something like knee pain that you're going to have a surgery for, for your osteoarthritis, the thalamus actually changes shape during the development of this pain. And then six months after the knee surgery, it goes back to normal. So this tells us that the, the responses of the brain to pain are very plastic. They can go both directions. They can be helpful in inhibiting pain. They can be unhelpful in decreasing that inhibition. And it also is something that can be modified. So the next level of modification comes from pain goes from the thalamus to the brain switchboard, uh, which is called anterior cingulate cortex. But whatever, there is a switchboard that then shoots that information out to memory and options and optimism and hope and fear and short-term and long-term decision-making and all these other places. And that ACC area can actually be um, very easily taken offline by solving a problem. Uh, it has to be a visual problem. It has to be a discrimination problem. Um, is that a cow or a horse? Or is what I tell people is look at a line of text and count how many of the letters have holes. Because then your ACC is just, wait, what? I, that, that's supposed to be a letter. I'm used to it in this context. So resolving conflicts is the primary job of the ACC. And if you and give the it ACC a, one more time, the switchboard, it's the switchboard okay. that is supposed to send the message of pain all over your brain. Okay. But if you give it some kind of a decision-making task to resolve a conflict, then it will, it'll prioritize that. So that's why distraction works. If distraction is something that you're paying a lot of attention to, particularly if it's a problem or a, a game or something or a critical decision-making thing, that's why it decreases pain. Because all of a sudden, the switchboard, who, which is supposed to be activating all the rest of these areas, isn't. And so the information never gets there. And so you just never have that input that you interpret as pain. Wow. So the practical ways yeah, yeah, to yeah. do it. All right. So a couple things. One is um, a great phrase is pain is your brain's opinion of how safe you are. And this whole you know, thalamus changing shape and all this, you know, influence up down stuff. One of the things that helps reshape your brain's connection, they call them connectomes. And, and they can see now that the areas that the switchboard is sending things through get thicker and heavier and faster, the more pain you have or, or the more traumatic it is getting that pain. So that connectome just is how efficient your brain is at feeling pain. So the more you have that connectome laid down, like with chronic pain or something traumatic, the more intense the pain is going to be perceived until you disable that, until okay. you get it down. Um, even if your body is fixed, once, once, you know, this is why you get that, that, they call it ramp up or central sensitization. So if you've had something that has hurt forever, like the knee pain, you do continue to feel more pain in that area until, even if it's fixed, until it has a chance to wear down. I think the six month is also really interesting because when people with chronic pain start on a program of in intentionally trying to ignore the pain if they know they're safe, intentionally going, okay, I can push through this. So this, I'm going to learn to tolerate this amount of pain. 
Um, it still takes about six months before you have a day where you realize, you know, I don't remember if I felt pain yesterday or not. So it takes a while. Um, and the other thing about these connectums is, is not everybody has the same intensity of response. So a lot of those things I think physicians need to know because it's part of why when I tell people when they go, when they've got a flare and they can't stand it and they've got to go to the emergency room and, and they feel awful and people are looking at them like are drug seeking, it really helps to have something that's signed by another doctor that says, this is the chronic pain condition I have. These are what I do when I have a flare. It has been this long. Um, usually it feels like this. It is different because of this. Because that's the thing is you'll get blown off because you've got something that's actually different, but all they're hearing is chronic pain and I'm here for medicines. So you know, it's very much focusing on this is different. Or my doctor and I agree when it gets to this level, which it has been now for two days, this is what we do. And so that that is helpful to know that what's going on is you have a connectome that is extremely efficient at feeling pain. And so that's part of what's going on. So that's so interesting. Um, so one of my dearest friends has sickle cell. And um, her, oh, this, with her team, she's very sensitive to what's going on with her body. And like you said, she knows you know, this is a level, this is the level where you know, I need to kick my plan to another level, you know, another route. You know, this is when you go to the emergency room. This is when you, and then not having the a communication with the clinician you know, can be so frustrating because she knows what's going to work. Um. Oh, and she's tried all those, oh, you know, hydration, oh, you know, distraction, uh, rest, um, and, and anyway. Yeah, yeah. She's like, believe me, I'm an expert here yeah. in my own pain, and yeah, I. Um, one of the things, one of my really good friends had sickle cell, has sickle cell, and and. What I know now is that the receptors in the brain to morphine are, are the mu receptors that are actually, you know, mainlining dopamine. So it, it's a reward center that you still feel the pain. It's just that you're not afraid and feeling out of control and then you don't care about the pain as much. Um, those receptors change over time. And so for my friend, she got to a place where morphine wouldn't work. It was only dilaudid because, and she said there was about a year where nobody would give her dilaudid and and she was in excruciating pain and they kept giving morphine which barely touched it so the whole concept that the, the reward receptors that make you able to cope with pain change over years but they also change over a couple of days which is why when you get sent home with oral opioids after a surgery they're probably not going to do much at all for most people because those receptors have gone, all right, you've been bathed in morphine now for a few days. We're just going to shrink in and not react as strongly. So again, this is the whole problem with having short-term, medium-term oral opioids after surgery or after an acute event because there's just that's the time where there's a lot of stuff that's better to deal with it. And chronic is just a different situation. So... You're talking now about receptors. 
So there's different kinds of receptors. And some of that is personal, like genetic or familial or experiential. And then um, when those receptors get triggered, I don't know what words to use for any of this stuff. Um, Yeah. Then... so that it sounds to me like then you're saying that this pain that people are experience is this conglomeration of is this whole menu of things that could happen and algorithms of pathways or whatever. Oh man, it's just so complicated. I guess what's important for the person is to have a better understanding of your own. Yeah. And also, and to know that the systems in the brain, that the way the brain communicates are really just, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Okay. And and so all of these communications in the brain are either saying it's bad or good. And so when you're activating like the dopamine or the serotonin or love neurotransmitters or satisfaction or empowerment or mastery or, or connection, all those different neurotransmitters, happiness neurotransmitters, um, all of those make you feel good. And so what happens with pain is it's trying to make you feel bad enough that you'll avoid that situation in the future. So in order to. Okay. So that's where you talk about switches. They're on or they're off. That they're not really complex. They're on or they're off. It, they're <laughs> they're kind of, uh, they get switched, and then it's kind of like a a New Year's Eve uh, cork that you pop, and a bunch of confetti comes out. Mm-hmm. So that's you know you trigger the neurotransmitter, and it goes woo, um, and then after okay. a while, okay. it brings it back in, and then you quit being able to go woo quite as much. Okay, but let's be more practical. It is. It is hard to think about um, this from a chemistry standpoint, but if you think about just these connections in the brain that are are either good at decreasing pain, uh, inhibiting it so that it doesn't bother you as much, or they're good at increasing pain sensitivity to try to teach you your lesson. Um, one of the coolest things is that there also are proteins in the brain that can dismantle these connections the things that restore your brain to a normal function. And one of the most powerful ones is 10 minutes of exercise triggers a big release of this brain fertilizer. It's called brain-derived neuropathic uh, nootrophic factor. And so, but it's basically, it's like brain fertilizer that will, will untangle some of these connections that make you feel more pain. When I was trying to get over month six or seven of my rotator cuff without getting surgery and the cortisone's long worn off and it's this sick sour pain that wakes you up every morning. Um, I read this and so I was like, I've been too tired and sad to, to exercise. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do an elliptical for 10 minutes and see what happens. And after about three days of doing that, it was amazing how much better my arm felt. It wasn't the arm that was getting exercised, but it, I realized it must have been this, this, um, this brain uh, fertilizer that was, was decreasing some of that intensity of chronic pain. 
It's like WD-40 or something, isn't it? Oh, and that's true too. Yeah. Just directly all movement makes your brain say, okay, I don't need to, I don't need to give a pain signal because we're safe. She's clearly doing this on purpose. We must be okay. Let's stand down. When I've experienced my worst pain, uh, you know, I I have this goal of 3,500 steps a day. And um, when I had my worst pain, oh, I just, the idea going outside and walking was, oh, even with my forearm crutches, it was like every step was excruciating. But I'm like determined. I've had, oh, ever since I was diagnosed, I'm like, you know, 3,500 steps a day. And so I could only really do a few hundred. But you're right. After a few days of that, I was in a different place. It isn't like the pain was really gone. The pain wasn't really gone till steroids. But or that was like more like the beginning of the end, but of that pain. But 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 the like being really determined to get those steps. Yeah. Uh, really made a difference. I didn't get anywhere near 3,500 steps. Oh my God. It was all I could do to get to the end of the driveway. But, um, okay. Okay. Go ahead. I, I get, I'm hearing you. Yeah. No, this is, but that's, but so, uh, the elliptical thing and the BDNF is like 10 minutes of your heart rate above, uh, 20% above normal. Okay. So, you can even get that doing doing some some right. you know, cardio arm stuff. Yes, unless it's your arm that's hurting. But there's a bunch of things going on, Danny, with what you're describing. So there is um, a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. Okay, that is more effective than gabapentin. And gabapentin is really an anxiety medicine. It's just a slower one. But fear and control are the volume knobs for pain. And so you took control and said, I am going to feel pain, but I accept this and I'm going to commit to walking. And just by being volitional about it, by actually intentionally deciding you're going to take a little bit more pain and, and tell the brain to shut up. This is what you're doing. That practicing control over pain is part of what gets it better over time. Um, feeling the pain but not being afraid because you're doing it on purpose is part of what gets it better over time. So it's this, it's mm-hmm. turning down the fear and turning up control that take a long time, but those are part of it. And so these guys, Knowles and I forget the other guy, but this acceptance and commitment therapy after six months again, it, that it works much better than oral medications for pain because you just are like, you know what? I'm not going to use how much pain I'm feeling as a metric. It's whether I've done my steps or, or other things. So I think that's a great example of, yeah, it doesn't work overnight, but it's after a couple of days, you start realizing it's better than it was. It's still not gone. It's just a little more comfortable. Oh, so or copable. There's right. a cool book that I found that um, I'm, I want to dig more into it, but okay. the book is called Building Resilience to Trauma. And it's by this woman named Elaine uh, Miller-Karras. And it's really, it's about, it's about 
um, jacking down the autonomic nervous system. So there's the fight or flight nervous system that gets associated with natural disasters or war or whatever. And it often is coupled with pain. But her book is really about how to get people who've been, who got PTSD from trauma past it when talk therapy doesn't work. And her premise is basically just that your oldest brain is so focused on safety that if anything reminds you, or if you even think about what happened, then you're going to freeze up. And so it's just focusing on this is my autonomic, I feel my heart rate going, I feel my diaphragm clenching up and giving you language for that. And then going, okay, so when you start to feel that where on your body feels good, get language for what feels good and concentrate on how your knee feels, concentrate on how your foot feels. And in doing that, people's heart rate go down, their stomach and their lungs unclench, and and they can practice it a, just a couple of times, and then they're able to, to get past that frozen place. So almost all the stuff she talks about in the book is really simple. It's nine steps. It's super simple. Um, and this is a book to teach people how to do it. Again, building resilience to trauma. They're in Ukraine. They're in lots of different war-torn places. Um, I think it's got so much application for getting past some of what sucks about chronic pain and learning how to concentrate on a different part of the body that doesn't also ramp up your fear and make you feel out of control. Beautiful. Yeah. I need your help as I expand my audience to younger people in advocacy. I'm doing more in short-form videos. Please help by pointing me to communities of young advocates and channels and hashtags they use so I can listen and learn. I now have one URL for all channels and media. That's Linktree slash Health Hats. Linktree is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E and then slash Health Hats, one word where you can subscribe, access episodes, my website and social media, and search the Health Hats archive. Your support is appreciated. Please visit Linktree slash Health Hats. Thank you. Well, my mom was a Holocaust survivor. And, um, you know, growing up with somebody who has that kind of... Um, reactions all these like heavily triggered reactions and her second husband bill he was really good at i'm going to read this book because I, I bet some of the stuff he did that you know just because he loved her and he you know he didn't like freak out that she was having these reactions oh you know, he was just about okay what can we do i wonder if he like Oh, that was some of what he did. I'm going to read it. It's a good, uh, interesting. Anyway, um, oh, oh, wow. Okay, so to me, like, okay, like I'm fascinated by these. What's the what's the physiology and the psychology and the spiritualism behind all this? And how we can use it. And so when I think about how we use it, I think there's that there, um, there's so many people who don't have helpers 
that are turned on to this stuff. So either they discover it for themselves or they're part of a community, you know, like my friend in New Zealand who has, you know, the fibromyalgia and a chronic fatigue system um, programs um, and services that she provides, or, you know, in her blog and her whatever. And, um, you know, Is this Melissa versus fibromyalgia? Yeah, Melissa Reynolds, yeah. And her stuff is great. She's it's great. Stuff. great. It's great. Um, you know, and I still follow her all the time. She's brilliant. And um, anyway, that's a whole other topic. But so what I'm thinking about is on several levels. I'm thinking about how do people find this this opportunity that you're describing, this knowledge opportunity, then how is it that they take stock of their health team, whether the health team is a partner or family member or medical person or non-medical clinician? How do they bring all this to bear? Because this is, it is the rare person who could do this alone. Oh yeah, because you're exhausted. You're just you're, you're so right. overwhelmed and depressed because it's just it. It's, it's a braiding. Yes, it's exhausting. So, so there's, yeah, what do you think about that? All right, what I think. Um, one of the people who taught, I think the person who taught me the most about pain is a woman named Regina Yoakum. She is a child life specialist. Do you know Regina? I, it's such a familiar name. And when you said child life, so that means she works at a children's hospital. So what child life specialists do is they got it before anybody else. It is this concept of increased control by explaining what's going to happen and letting somebody know what to expect, decrease fear by giving people options and letting them choose how they want, either what they want to distract themselves with. Um, and then advocating for pain management. So yeah. no, we're not going to do this until we have topical anesthetic, or we're not going to do it until we have buzzy, or just so you got yeah. somebody who is advocating for you. Right. So she had, had juvenile arthritis, has rheumatoid arthritis. She's mostly wheelchair bound, intermittently. Uh, something like when I, I mean, I don't remember how many surgeries she had. And she said, "Here's the trick to pain." You can only do so much with the, the nervous, the nerves that are bringing pain to the spine. And you can only do so much to actually fix pain. And there's so very few medicines um, that will actually do anything for pain. And they don't last long because your brain, pain is your brain survival system. It's going to overcome medicines after a while. But she said there's a lot of different supplements that you can try. And the turmeric and magnesium and other stuff we've talked about before. There's a whole bunch of those. She said, but there's even more physical interventions you can do. And there's even more brain body and ways that you can help the neurotransmitter do stuff that's going to make the neurotransmitters and make you more comfortable. And she said, knowing that there's always some other combination you can try, the hope is the part and having options are the parts that, that, are the most significant for addressing pain. So we put those into a book on our website, just every evidence-based thing I could find 
Um, so we've got a link we can put that's what works for pain. It's a free download. Um, but I do think that having a, a resource where you can try something else is really, really helpful. And I had one other idea about this that Regina taught me, but I want to let you have a chance to respond to that. Well, now, um, when I worked at Boston Children's, one of the things that amazed me the most were there was this group of phlebotomists who, when they came in the room, the kids, like if they could move, would run to them and jump in their arms. And if they couldn't move, their faces which had been flat or miserable, would light up. And these were phlebotomists who were coming to take blood. And they were, it was just amazing that, and that's what they did. They were so tuned in to um, understanding the kid and what did they need and what was the routine and they did it. And so the kids were like, oh, my God, they had control. They had they were just delighted to see her. Oh, they and they felt safe. They felt. Yeah. It, and then my other is, is um, the clowns oh, who are a certain type of child life specialist. You know, and what they would do to, um, uh, you know, go in the room and and you know, read the room and then, you know, what's going to work, what's going to help. and Read the room and find the game. Yeah, which, yeah, it was another whole nother beauty. So this, this all just makes so much sense. You know what's funny is that you know, I was well, at the chiropractor the other day. I went to the chiropractor and his image of me is they, that I have a really high pain tolerance. And my image of me is that I'm a complete wuss. <laughs> and it's really hard for me to reconcile that. And, hmm. but I, I, what I, now that I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that my tolerance for living with a lot of pain is really low. That's the wuss. So I really fast kick into, Okay, what can I do? Okay, I got to drink water. That's first. That's always first. Drink water. You know what I mean? And then I have this routine like, okay, these are the things. Oh, so, uh, do the vibration. Do, you know, what do I got? What are, if I don't understand what's going on, here are the things that generally work. Yeah. But if it's a specific kind of pain, these are the things that have worked already. And, Oh, I've had, I got three of them and I know that one of them will work. And if one of them doesn't work, then I go to my wife and you know, my, you know, I'm in trouble you now. And then yeah. she'll help me you know, navigate through that. But I never really thought it in turn. This is interesting. This dashboard, these switches, these, you no, know, I mean, it's all, it makes sense. And it's so maybe I'm both a wuss and I have a high pain tolerance. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, I don't. I I think everybody, it's really just wherever your baseline is and if you're above it or below it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, 
whether you've got a high tolerance or a low tolerance, it's just, it, it doesn't I have really matter. Yeah. yeah. One of the things you asked, and I, this gets into stuff what Gina said and your wife is um, when she was teaching families how to help kids with JIA or kids with pain, she said, thing What's is, JIA? Uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Okay. I, I yeah, so she said, what's really important, and I, I came up with the pain and control or fear and control or the volume ups for pain, but some of it's because of what I'm about to tell you that she said, the thing is, if you feel vulnerable and you feel out of control and helpless, then it makes the pain worse and you don't do anything to, and you don't, you don't do anything. And so then you're just muddled in it. She said, so what I teach the parents and caregivers to do is when the kid comes and says, I'm in pain, then it's, what would you like to try? And so it's not saying, let's do this for you. Let's do this for you. It's, I acknowledge that you're in pain. That sucks. What do you want to try? And so then you throw it back. And so the person with the pain is saying, well, maybe I'll try this. And she, you know, and the thing is, oftentimes the kids are like, I don't know. So then it's, what did you try last time that was helpful? What was, or what's something you haven't tried in a while that has worked? So again, it's still getting them back to where they're empowered. And also there's this, it's right. There's this area in the right frontal where um, optimist, optimistic people have more activity here. Hope kind of lives here. And that's the area that lights up in people who don't have chronic pain and it's got decreased activity with chronic pain. So the more you can, teach somebody how to um, to think about their own options. I think you're activating the receptors there that can decrease pain. So, um, so the set, first thing is, what do you want to try? Second thing is, well, what have you tried before? And then third thing is, what have you tried you know, a long time ago that you haven't tried in a while? And finally, it's, is there something that you think I can do for you? And so then, and then the final thing is, if they don't come up with anything, it's like, why don't I do this? But there's so many places of, I know you can figure this out. Um, and that's where having the workbook helps it is, yes. okay, so if they don't look at the workbook, then you can look at a forum and say, we really haven't tried turmeric. Let's uh, find out the best turmeric to use, that kind of thing. Okay, so let's shift to the, um, you know, working with clinicians. Well, Okay, so I'm really fortunate because my primary care doc will say, I don't know anything about that. Tell me your experience with acupuncture or with um, chiropractic in a different way than she's accustomed to. But I like that she's like, okay, like, you know, I get validated and I tell her my experience and she'll ask questions and then that's part of virtual kit oh and she said oh really good to know that i have some people that oh that might be helpful to i, I talked to so many people who are in a um a, an, a, an adversarial relationship with their helping people and that just seems so i can say I live in Boston, and, and well, there are clinicians coming out of your ears. And so I can, I can go, which I have done. Well, you're not it. And 
you know, yeah. try somebody else. But people can't. So most people can't do that. So I don't know. This might be out of your out of the realm of this conversation, but I don't know. What are your people have that issue all the time? There's a woman named Jenny Shulkin who she and her dad, who was the head of the F the VA for a while. Um, so they've started a company called override. And at this point, I think it's like, you've got to pay something for a monthly connection, which is unfortunate. I don't know if insurance covers it, but I think some does, but anyway, but it connects you via telemedicine to pain doctors and all sorts of pain, doctors, pain psychologists, um, rheumatologists, but a bunch of different people so that you can find someone with a telemedicine visit who can help. Which is, that's really, yes, that, yes. Yeah. So that, that is, don't know yet. It's fairly new business, but at least to, if you're in the middle of, of a really rural place, at least there is an option to be able to find some expertise. Um, And then uh, the, as everybody who has been frustrated with a physician knows, part of our training is to act like we know stuff and you have to be really secure with yourself to do what your doctor does and say, Oh, I don't know about that. Tell me more. And then you also have to have the bandwidth as a physician to be curious enough to look stuff up and, and have the time to do it. This so is cultural humility. Ooh, that's a good phrase. I haven't heard that before. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. My next episode um, is going to be, that's what it's going to be about. I've yeah. interviewed three people who are anyway, but that business of uh, humility, meaning, you know, uh, I don't know. Tell me more. Um, yeah. You know, is it like, or no, that didn't work. Okay. What are we going to, let's see, what are we going to try next? Yeah. So it's like, you're talking that, that language. Um, you're right. Control. That feeling of feeling helpless to me, when I feel, like I think in terms of physical, mental, and spiritual trumps all, as far as I'm concerned. And feeling helpless is the spiritual. And when I feel that, it's, I got to deal with it. I got to deal with it now because then if I don't, everything else is screwed. Um, no, then you, yeah. Um, and do you mean like filling up your bucket, like having a good interaction with somebody? Do you mean a, 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 a my, my daughter calls them soul points. Yes. But, uh, yep. Yeah. 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 That's a great, I love that. Oh, tell your daughter I'm using that. Okay. okay. That's good. It, it, yeah, I don't know how this relates and whether I'll use this on the episode. Or, you know, I realize more and more now that even though I am a curious person and I do this work where I'm always trying to learn, I realize that in my retirement, I am more and more living in a bubble. And what I mean by that is that anything that messes with my Oh, a pathological optimism. 
I'm like staying away from mm. just because I can't deal with everything else if I'm not in that space. And so when I, when I meet people who I like that, what did you call it? A soul point? Soul points. Soul yeah. points. So, you know, when you meet somebody and you feel that soul point with them, okay, now that is somebody, you know, that I'm going to connect with. Now, if I meet somebody and, oh my, it's like soul sucking, um, I, uh, I, I can't afford it. I just had a real insight about how we can talk about switches and neurotransmitters. Okay. So the thing about opioids is that they don't stop the pain feeling. They just give you so many soul points that you don't care. Okay. So, um, which is true. It's, dopamine is such a huge reward that it's your bucket is filled up enough that you're not noticing the bucket of pain. Um, but all of those other things that give you soul points, those are all less intense, but really good neurotransmitters that like we talked about serotonin, friendship, love, gardening, um, hearing music, smelling something that all of those things release different amounts of neurotransmitters that are positive. And so they're little soul points and maybe they're smaller coins of soul points, but, but, and, uh, you know, dopamine is the, the big giant gold coin of uh, soul points. Now I'm getting metaphors mixed up, but, but I think that, that that's one of the things is that what, one of the ways to deal with pain, if you can't stop the source of it is to figure out how many other ways can I get stuff that makes me feel good enough that I can just tolerate or ignore the pain because I've got enough stuff. I've got enough soul points accumulating other places. Oh my God, this is brilliant. <laughs> This stuff is so important, so important. Oh, my goodness. On so many levels, this stuff is so important. All right. I think this is enough. Otherwise, yeah. I, I have to um, – is there something that we – before we end, are there – is there another point you want to make, or did we miss something that's like – I think this goes along with the soul point concept and with what pain is. If you realize that pain isn't you, pain is just an accumulation of, of the brain trying to protect you and trying to teach you something, but it's not you. It's just this accumulated amount of, of negative neurotransmitters. It maybe makes it a little bit easier to think, okay, so I have this huge bucket. I just need to figure out ways to, to override it. And the, the great thing is over all of the two millennia that humans have been around, um, we have really developed for movement and for um, doing things with other people in community to restore our soul points and to make us feel better. And so since our society doesn't do that now, thinking about overriding this accumulation of pain with things that give you more community movement, uh, dedication, and and determination. That it makes sense. That is how we're designed to feel better. Oh, I appreciate that. I guess I think about it a little bit differently. Like I used to think 
oh, what was important for me was like what you said. I am not my pain. I am not MS. I am not my disabilities. But what I found more satisfying in my, mm-hmm. like the last five or 10 years is more, um, I just got to love that stuff. That is all part of me. And it what makes me the you know, crazy person is, is all of that. I mean, would yeah. I have had all these experiences? I would have never met you if I didn't um, have uh, MS and didn't have pain. I would have never met you. And what a shame that would have been. Um, so, you know what I'm, I'm saying? It's like, I just feel, oh, let's just embrace this stuff. And just, I got to love it. That This is me. I love it. Now, oh, I don't, I'm not like delighted with everything that I am. Oh, I, I can be such a jerk sometimes. And <laughs> I, I got bad habits. No, it's all part of who I am. You know, it's the spice. It's the. Yeah. I can't take it away. That's the other thing. And this is, we talked about this in 2019 is the, um, like my goal is not to not have pain. My goal is to appreciate life and function as well as I can. And with, Whatever constellation of crap I'm dealing with or goodness. Um, all right, this is a good note to end on. Honey, I love you. It's so good to see you, and thank you for taking the time with me. Um, this is going to be a killer episode. Um, it's always such a pleasure, and now especially with the hat. All right. All right. Thank, you, again. thank you so much. Okay, bye. Full disclosure, Amy and I recorded a previous conversation. We worried after that first recording that we were too technical. I didn't understand it well enough to insert explanations myself. So we tried again. Now my problem is that I have 12 possible nuggets from this episode. I only want to use three to five. I was able to cut it off at six. Let's see. I didn't include oldest and best survival system, pain as opportunity, the thalamus conducts the switchboard, what's going on communicating to physicians, neurotransmitters on or off, and exercise as WD-40 loosening lubricant. Phew, much richness. Peace be with you. Host, write, and produce Health Hats the Podcast with assistance from Kayla Nelson and Leon and Oscar Van Leeuwen. Music from Joey Van Leeuwen. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I buy my hats at Selma Gundy, Boston, and my coffee from the Jennifer Stone Collective. Links in the show notes. I'm grateful to you 
who have the critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. Subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block. <laughs>